Okay, welcome back to another episode of Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Uh, my guest today is Tom Tobin. Tom's an, ex- an expert in healthcare investment, and we've been having uh, a lot of different conversations about the future of healthcare. Um, and he said something that, that we found so interesting that we thought, why don't we have him on the podcast? So, um, Tom, thanks for, for joining us. Thanks for having me, brother. So you're not a doctor, uh, nor do you even play one on TV. Um, but you are a healthcare expert. Explain real fast why you know so much about healthcare. Uh, I guess it's, it, I'm a PhD dropout, so I, I was getting a PhD in biochemistry um, and really didn't want to do that. At some point along the way, it just it seemed uh, to, to chase grants seemed like a really uh, difficult life unless you were going to be one of the best, and I, I'm pretty confident I wasn't going to be one of the best at that. But I still really enjoy reading about it and talking about it and sort of applying that kind of scientific rigor to things and, uh, you know, sort of wa- literally wandered into, you know, being a, a stock analyst and sort of caught on at a long, short hedge fund for a bunch of years and sort of always, you know, in terms of the, you know, I think a friend of mine called me a, uh, you know, part-time grad student still just you're constantly coming up with new ideas to investigate, new data sources to uncover and, and so I, I, I maintained a pretty good understanding from interviewing doctors, providers, policy people, you know, just covering the gamut of all the facets of healthcare for, gosh, since 95, I've been at this. So pick, you pick up a lot along the way. Yeah, you got the gold, you got the gold watch last year, 25 years, right? <laughs> Not from anybody in particular, but maybe, uh, maybe a good, you know, punch myself in the shoulder and say, hey, good job. All right. Well, if any listener really, really likes this podcast and you're trying to get rid of a gold watch, uh, Tom deserves one and his employer did not get him one. So uh, that's our new cause here. So the, the thing that you said that I think caught everyone's attention, and I guess I should disclose Tom is a really close friend of both Hugo and mine, so we talk a lot, um, is that, that we're kind of entering potentially a, a golden age for healthcare and things are about to get a lot better quickly. Um, tell me what you think by that. Yeah. And so again, like going back to all the, even, even my work as a PhD student, you know, you're, you're in a system, we're all in a system that really hasn't invited in, and in, in, in a real way, the consumer. And, you know, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of fear and concern and, and trepidation around toying with healthcare, I think from a, from a politics point of view, from a policy point of view, but, you know, the reality of it is that, you know, you know, I'm not a lawyer, right? I don't, I don't want to be my own lawyer. I don't want to be my own doctor either. I don't want to be my own surgeon. I just had my knee worked on. Like, you need professional people uh, to take care of you. And I think from uh, from the perspective of how things have gone, this is, you know, healthcare has really been organized around paying for things. Uh, it's been organized around treating, you know, really difficult to treat diseases and. We've done a really good job of both of those things, but what we really haven't done is is figured out how consumers interact with the system, and we haven't really figured out how to keep people actually healthy. And those are questions that are just you know now becoming you know because somebody has something in their hand, they have this iPhone or this smartphone in their hand, they have access to a lot of information. They have now companies that are competing for their attention, competing for their. Uh, you know, them as consumers, as opposed to them being totally left out of the system and out of the, how payment structures are made, how policy is set. Yeah. So, so, so here, I guess, so if you're a consumer in the U S that has, you know, good health insurance, 
you've always, I think, had access to the latest healthcare technology, whatever it was, right? So that it, it's not that the U.S., as I understand it, the healthcare system didn't have the best of what was to offer, but we had these structural problems that meant that some people could get the best, but it was extremely expensive. And because it was extremely expensive, a lot of people couldn't get access to much of anything at all, absent you know government programs that weren't nearly as good or they were going without completely. Um, what changed that all of a sudden now you think allows that access to be available to everyone? Is it the conversion of kind of patients to consumers or is it just this kind of breakthrough in kind of mobile technology? It's a bunch. So it's several things. So if, if again, going back a long way, there's you know, over the last 50 or 80 years, depending on what your starting point is, you, you're either going back to World War II when health insurance was added as a as a form of compensation because there were wage controls and and during wartime and then the second big piece was you know medicare in 1965 and if you look at those two events as these key catalysts is one is is divorcing somebody from the payment of right so it's embedded in your job it's embedded in your wages um it it eats into your wage growth but it it, you know it's it's very passive so you're, you're disconnected from paying for things and then the second piece was that the government became a very large payer over time so at the time when medicare was uh launched in 1965 the average life expectancy was something like i don't know 70 years old for 65 year old man it was like i don't know 67 Right. So it wasn't a super generous benefit, but it was enough to get the ball rolling. And over time, there's been a lot of effort around that policy and how we pay for things that, you know, essentially divorcing people from like, what does this cost and what is this worth? And and how do I make a choice? Um, all the system that grew up around that. So an insurance company doesn't really they're just trying to get you to next year. They're not really interested in your health overall, and they're actually levered pretty positively to inflation. They like it when prices go up because they make a spread. So there's more money per capita. That's good for them. Your employers don't like it, but they don't really want to rock the boat. So they're not they're not too, too interested in, in you know, it just, just keep my employees happy, keep them healthy, you know, keep the network okay. But as good as the next guy, sort of this, this you know, race to marginalism is, is kind of how it works. And then the politicians, nobody's ever really been too concerned um, with, with engaging this consumer, because all that's really sounded like over the last 20 or 30 years has been cost shifting. So we're going to, we're going to create co-pays and deductibles, which came in like, I think the nineties, um, co-insurance, uh, you know, all sorts of, you know, you know, narrow networks and this kind of thing, which now we have this, this, you know, this, this horrible visitation of surprise billing. So people get, you know, the list price for a hospital is, 10x or some crazy factor more than what they're really going to get paid uh, by an insurer. So if it, if, it, if it wasn't the insurers and it wasn't the government, but you think we're on the cusp of a, of a transformative moment in healthcare in the U.S., what prompted it? I think COVID's been a big piece of it. I think that's been the catalyst, but there's been a building. I think the things that have been slowly happening are, are one is just inflation, the eroding the eroding power of inflation is so corrosive that, you know, like I said, like if you if you're caught uninsured, you're caught out of network, which can happen un, not under any kind of uh, you know you, you maybe not know, but you end up you know with this huge bill because you know some fancy hospital has a list price set at you know eight times or ten times you know what what an insurance company gets, um, and and the bankrupts people and it's it's kind of this horrible stressful thing. Um, th- that that divergence, 
you know, because pricing has been going up at 2x for healthcare versus everything else, everything, you know, U.S. pays whatever the OECD thing, um, you know, per capita spending here is 2x what it is in the developed world and, you know, multiples of that in the undeveloped world. But we don't get a lot for it, right? So I think in as much as what, what COVID has done is sort of unlocked a couple of things. So if you look at telemedicine, telemedicine used to be restricted to, uh, you know, where the patient was at the time. So you could do a telemedicine visit if the site of care was consistent with, uh, you know, the initiating, the initiating appointment, basically. So you couldn't, because, because Medicare is like blind, deaf, and dumb, and they're constantly getting billed. So their whole their whole concern is, is fraud, you know, fraud, waste, and abuse, because you, know, you can, you bill and they pay automatically. And it's, it's pretty easy to essentially defraud Medicare. So there, then there's a lot of concern about overuse because physicians, you know, will, will do stuff that gets them paid, uh, not always in the, in the, in a horrible sense, but they're definitely, you know, they're levered to getting, to doing things because, you know, they get paid to do things. Uh, they don't get paid to not do things. So I, I just, so I think from, from the COVID perspective, what COVID taught us is if you put telemedicine in the hands of the consumer and the patient, if you allow them to make choices, you know, they essentially deliver, you know, they, they basically get better care that they self-direct, right? I don't need to go to the doctor's office to get care. I can, I can do a, a message. I can use telemedicine. I can pick this up at the pharmacy or have it mail ordered to my house. But essentially I have what I'm, what I'm finding out is that I have all this power in the palm of my hand. And I can, I can make choices between, you know, what, which physician, which hospital system and the, and the care that's coming to me, as opposed to what I'm going out to seek is, is totally different. And I, and I think part of what's getting broken is these legacy healthcare customers. Like you don't need to go wait in your doctor's office for hours on end, you know, an appointment that's scheduled two or three weeks in advance. You know, now I can get this kind of on-demand, you know, high level of service, and I'm going to come to expect that. So I think from a physician office perspective, they're going to have to change. They're going to have to become, you know, consumer centric as opposed to just somebody that takes the, you know, you get, you get to kind of beat up on your patients. So you, you gave me a list of different sort of technology advances that kind of back up your argument for why we're entering this really transformative moment of change. I'm going to kind of run through each one and you tell me like, is this like super important, uh, just kind of important or lower down on the list relative to the stuff? And, and if it's super important, why? So the, the first one on the list were, were health apps, which I think you've already kind of covered, which is just the notion of smartphones giving consumers uh, more, more access. But the, the next one was remote monitoring. How important is that? Well, I think, so just, a, you know, those two actually go together pretty well. So the first on the, on the health apps, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of intervention that can happen before you even leave your apartment or your place of work to go to this visit. You know, and, and a health app, if you can have a doctor on your phone or somebody to interact with, that prevents that ER visit. Um, we've talked to companies focused on musculoskeletal, and if you can keep somebody with a sprained ankle from going to get an ER visit to get that x-ray, you, you can save you know, tens of thousands of dollars you know, just in that one kind of event alone. Um, with the health apps, though, too, when you have the repair that with remote monitoring and you can keep people safely in their home, one of the big cost drivers for healthcare is labor. Um, there's been a lot of effort over the years to get patients discharged out of a acute care inpatient setting. I mean, cataract surgery used to be done in a hospital in the 80s. It's now done 
very routinely in an outpatient setting. They've just recently led uh, total knee reconstruction, total hip reconstruction, arthroplasty, you know, get your hip replaced. That now can be in an outpatient setting. And what you're essentially doing is taking all the infrastructure, that hospital infrastructure, which covers a lot of costs. And, you know, a, a total knee can be twenty dollars or $30,000 in terms of reimbursement. You're putting that through, you know, a single day visit in an outpatient setting. Uh, that makes you know, the device much cheaper. Ultimately, it makes the facility much better uh, in terms of efficiency, in terms of lack of infections, and in terms of performance. It gets the patient up, working, uh, and, and, and ambulatory very quickly, uh, which is better for them longer term in terms of their recovery. So this, but, but having that patient in the home creates a certain incremental risk. If you have devices that Bluetooth enable that are actually pretty accurate, and you can actually monitor real vitals, um, and that physician has a real sense through the telephone, you know, like through the, that smartphone, and can interview that patient and have actual biometric data, you know, that just makes it a much safer and much more economical, you know, essentially, uh, encounter. You're not burdened by all the other costs that go along with having, you know, a large inpatient institution that is essentially paid by Medicare and that has their reimbursement set by their overall costs. So the, the legacy of costs is what drives and pricing. So if we break some of that legacy costs, I think we, we break pricing. Okay. All right. So that's, that's remote monitoring. Um, biometrics, what, how important is it? And if so, why is it important? And, and why does technology make it better? Yeah. I mean, I, I, the, there's a confluence, a lot of different things that, you know, that are, that are enabled, you know, that the telemedicine is now open and available. Now you can have a doctor, you know, sort of on your phone remotely where you are. If you can communicate back to them, you know, I can, I have a Bluetooth scale, I have a Bluetooth blood pressure cuff, like basic, uh, you know, basic metrics that help them decide if I, you know, am having a, you know, health event that's worth, you know, escalation. Um, the biometric stuff is, you know, something like continuous glucose monitoring. It's, it's, it's a pretty amazing tool that, you know, for a diabetic in particular, you know, which is where that use is mostly restricted to now, whether or not you're a type one insulin dependent, uh, type two diabetic, you can have this device on you that's sort of monitoring and looking and tracking your blood glucose level uh, continuously for days on end. Um, there's even companies that are now trying to create a one that's implanted. Um, these types of tools uh, give you a whole picture, give the, the medical community a whole picture of what's happening with that patient over an extended period of time. So if you're, if you're a blood if you're using continuous blood glucose sugar monitoring, it helps you lower your A1C, which lowers your, um, you know, helps you get better in tune with what you're eating and how your blood sugar is, is being managed, helps you lose weight. In, in some cases, I think if they give this thing, if they make this available to at a good enough price, you make it available to type two diabetics, it, it's gonna help people lose weight. It's gonna help people reverse uh, their type two diabetes. Uh, there's a, a bunch of these types of biometric tools in the pipeline. We've talked to a bunch of folks that have, you know, whether or not it's a saliva-based, urine-based, um, you know, there are metric, there are tools that are going to be out there measuring uh, all sorts of analytes that then go into sort of a whole assessment of where the patient is in time, but also importantly, give the patient a chance to review their own, uh, their own biometrics, their own trend line, and make the adjustments real time that they need to. And I, and I think that's going to be a, a powerful, you know, a, a powerful change. Yeah. So, I mean, diabetics are, you know, 
tend to be considered people who are frequently lower income, so therefore people who don't have the same access to health care as, uh, as others. Um, so if, if that's true and if biometrics can really make a big difference, um, it, 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 is this, the, whatever the gulf was that made it hard for poorer people to get access to decent care, um, is something like biometrics something that overcomes that gap for diabetics or uh, is it insufficient on its own to do that? I think it's insufficient, right? So these are all interlocking. You can't just, you, you can't just parachute in a, you know, dump a bunch of uh, glucose monitoring devices into a neighborhood and expect, you know, big changes, obviously. You need to have sort of these hybrid, I mean, I think the new model really is heading towards this hybrid model where you have sort of a blended uh, in-person type uh, interaction. So you're going to go see somebody you have to have, I think generally it's considered incredibly important to have a, an actual relationship with an actual caregiver uh, to, to make any of these types of interventions successful. Uh, but in the in-between times, and in order to make that most efficient for everybody, uh, you have to have some, some sort of metric to, to look at, to manage to, as well as some, uh, providing some accountability in, in terms of, okay, are you, you know, are you eating okay? Like some of the stories we've heard from endocrinologists is that, you know, patients will take off those devices and eat a piece of cake, right? It's because they don't want to be, uh, you know, they don't necessarily want to, you know, be aware of it. And at the same time, you know, th there's an element too that if you're just aware of it, it helps you uh, control what you're doing in terms of eating and how it affects you. Um, and there's a there's a lot. I mean, I'm going to think the majority of folks are are in that camp where they're going to welcome that kind of information versus not. All right. So you, the the next three on your list all sound very fancy: yeah. um, genomics, a artificial intelligence, and blockchain. Um, collectively, you know, what do these three things mean in terms of really covering that gap of, of care that we've had up until now? Yeah, I mean, I, I think artific I'll start with artificial intelligence, because I think it's it sounds way scarier and fancier than it actually is. It, you know, if, if you look at what, uh, you know, a lot of these tools are, are routinely, uh, you know, more routinely applied, they're, they're fairly, uh, not sim they're not simple, obviously, because it takes a lot of computing power to get them done. But essentially, you're looking for the what works in the data and, and how, how easily can you filter through uh, lots of signal, lots of noise to find the signal. And in this case, in the simple case of, of remote monitoring, say, or you put somebody in a, in a diabetic uh, program, an intervention program, uh, where you're going to you know, send them you know, send them on a continue. You're going to review their continuous glucose monitoring data. Uh, you're going to check in with them every so often on the phone, and you're going to have an in-person visit over time. There's a certain amount of person, you know, personalization that you need to prompt that person in the right time to get them to act. So, if if you just leave somebody by themselves, or and their their disease gets uncontrolled, they're going to be by themselves with an uncontrolled disease. When you put them in the context of one of these programs, there's a certain amount of customization. How do you not annoy somebody that they stop paying attention? Right. That's that's kind of the bigger one. But yeah. ultimately, any of these programs work as long as you get people in the diabetic example, as long as you get people to interact, if you get people to opt in of any kind, like in typically you can get about 30 percent of people to 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 uh, essentially interact with the system. If you get that kind of interaction, those people do really well. So how, how do you boost the how do you boost the engagement? And, and that's really I think that the test for AI is going to be how do we get 
you know, the most out of what the data that we're seeing in terms of influencing health outcomes on the back end. And I think that's where this artificial intelligence becomes something that helps sort of maximize the utility of the labor piece, which is always the most expensive part of the healthcare delivery system anyway. And then genomics, you know, genomics, I, again, like I, I quit my PhD. I was actually did a lot of work uh, in the very early stages of what, what has become uh, genomics and sort of high throughput sequencing and, and uncovering what all this genetic information means. And if, again, like what, what the United States does really well and what we've done really well for the world is, is these big, you know, these big science projects. And one of them was sequencing the human genome. Needless to say, it's really complicated, you know, 3 billion base pairs and, and 30,000 genes and the environment is like, we're only now kind of uncovering the very easy stuff that, you know, that's going to make a big difference in terms of, you know, am I more, am I more likely to develop diabetes? And that's a, that's a big question. Um, what should I be looking for as a patient for the develop the early stages that I could intervene at that have, you know, improve my outcome. Um, there's also the element of, you know, post disease, like what do we do on a follow-up? We're looking at a lot of companies that are doing a lot of these genetic tests that help, uh, help a patient, help a physician see if your cancer is recurring. Um, Later on, I think they're going to have tests that tell you if you have an early stage of cancer versus, you know, finding out if you have stage three or stage four or some sort of inoperable, uh, inoperable type. Um, I think there's a big opportunity to, to, to distinguish between, you know, severe disease versus non-severe disease, things that you can get away with watchful waiting versus not. So the genomics piece, I think, is going to feed a lot of the underpinning of information that help people get better, more personalized, and more, uh, you know, better outcomes, both from a cost perspective, uh, you know, de-risking their future, and essentially creating a lot more peace of mind. So tell me, as a healthcare investor, you take all this information, right? You have all these technological changes that you just went through. It has tremendous potential on the part of healthcare that's by far the most important, which is delivering, you know, better care to people for less money. Um, but you obviously are paid to figure out, you know, specifically which companies uh, are more valuable than others. So how are you thinking about this big picture? If, if people who are listening to this podcast are investing in healthcare, how should they be thinking? About it? Yeah. So, I mean, the first stop is that it's really hard to kill healthcare companies. So I, I've been at this for a long time, both on the long side and the short side. And, it, and it's, you know, this game has changed a lot since you know, back in the day, you, know, you could do a lot of one-on-one -on -one meetings with companies. Um, you know, get you know, talk to experts, and it's be one of a handful of people who really understood what what was about to happen, and and whether or not a, what the appetite for a stock was going to be based on you know, what was going to happen next. I, I think in today's world, all the technological advances, the high-frequency trading, the AI, the you know, sort of the just the the level of information, the, the noise and the signal and, and just the, the breakneck speed of, of Fed policy and where we've been it just makes that fundamental view and sort of what you and I are talking about very difficult in a public market setting. Um, I, I, but I do think what when I look at sort of the top cap of healthcare, so if you look at the S&P 500 and the big companies in there, like this Four Horsemen, it's, it's United Healthcare. Uh, CVS, HCA is a hospital company, and and these folks are are sort of sitting. You know what has been like? What's it for? Yeah, no, it's for. I'm trying to think of the. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's UNH, CVS, HCA, and uh, well, three then. 
It's called the three-legged stool. Yeah, three-legged stool. So the, the legacy piece of this, though, is that, you know, what is, you know, the growth rates have been slowing since 2002. Uh, everybody's essentially consolidated up into, you know, a handful of players. And the real innovation, again, like if you go back to like, well, what's happened? Well, the inflation, I think, has really sucked the life out of the innovation cycle, that there's just not a lot of, you know, between the payment models, the policies, um, the lack of consumer involvement, there's just there's not been a lot of change and metabolism within the leadership of the healthcare universe. Um, and where, where I think we're heading is much more consumer centric. And I think actually the disruption is going to come from the private side. I think there's a lot more interesting things going on in uh, sort of the private and held private type, you know, company sets that are going to be really disruptive to, to the legacy providers. And, you know, something like a United Healthcare, you know, they, they've built a, they've built and acquired their way to a, a pretty, you know, pretty amazing cash machine, you know, but is, is the Optum business really doing, uh, you know, is it really doing the, the work of innovation? I mean, some people think they are, I think, you know, their payment models in terms of the way the insurance companies work is just, is super, super non-conducive to, to the innovating cycle. Uh, somebody like an HCA, uh, you know, it's a great hospital company, but they're, they're long, big assets, you know, they're, they're long, uh, you know, big diagnostic equipment, uh, you know, getting people through per click, um, big infrastructure, big facility costs. And these aren't the things that you, you, we need to, we need to melt the four walls of the hospital and people need to re- get out into the, melt into the community, melt into an ambulatory surgical centers, melt into, you know, sort of at-home care. And we need to actually think more about getting people getting people healthy and keeping people healthy as opposed to treating the disease side. Cause you know, if you, if you just look at how this whole thing is organized, it's organized around uh, treating disease and there's really hasn't been any money in, you know, keeping a consumer healthy and happy. And again, like thinking about what people, how people are going to interact with the healthcare system now through this filter of their phone, through these apps, through this telemedicine processing, and then how, how we get organized around taking care of that person before they get sick and even during and after. I think is, is going to change materially and, and put a lot of power in that consumer's hand that, that are ultimately really deflationary to somebody who like, a, you know, New York Presbyterian or HCA or some big hospital system who's essentially resting on their reputation. Like, do you really, uh, you know, like I, I made a choice to have my surgery done at, at a, you know, a local hospital here, but there's, there'll come a day where that, that kind of sheen of, of, um, you know, respectability or that, that sort of quality, uh, I think it is going to be is going to be very very different. All right. So la- last question, um, and it kind of builds right into what you were just talking about with your surgery, which is a couple of columns ago for Fast Company, uh, I wrote a piece saying um, maybe we don't need um, hospitals as much anymore, and and maybe what COVID also taught us is that the vast majority of functions could be performed at home. They would take advantage of all the technology that you've been talking about for the last 20, 30 minutes. Um, and we can get rid of all of the costs associated with the capital act, the cap acts, the operating costs, plus the fact that hospitals seem to be kind of great places to spread viruses. Yeah. Um, I, I get that like brain surgery still has to happen somewhere outside of your living room, but, but big picture, what do you think? Yeah, I, I'd agree. I mean, I think hospitals have become, I think there's a couple things to that. So the, the, the in, and if you look at what Medicare's actually been doing is probably the more the most innovative stuff that they've done in a long time is, is sort of allowing the inpatient only 
So there's this whole list of inpatient only type surgeries. Those are now being allowed to be done in a, an ambulatory surgical center. So something like a total knee, something like a total hip, now perfectly okay for you to go get that done. If your doctor agrees, you know, you can go get that done in an ambulatory setting. And if you don't have essentially the hotel costs, if you don't have all the other infrastructure costs, including the labor, you know, which is a big piece of it, but clearly the big iron, clearly the facility cost, those are all things that go into you know, their cost reports, which then go up to Medicare, which they then are built, you know, what they build the next, you know, the next year's pricing on. So as long as that infrastructure cost is, is rising and the labor cost is rising, you sort of have this built-in inflationary component to it. If you reverse that, you say, well, I'm going to lower the cost of care by lowering the cost of the setting of the care, you know, ambulatory and discharge to the home. Um, you know, that That's, you know, by definition, you're going to lower the cost of care, uh, you know, for everybody and for everything, because you're going to you're going to seek out, you know, the most efficient way to do things, because that ASC is going to do a better job, essentially, of, uh, you know, delivering that care with, you know, less, you know, less infection, less return and readmission for treatment for some for some hospital acquired thing or some, you know, uh, you know, poor like some surgeons do very few of these and they don't do them very well. Other surgeons do a lot of them do and do them inc incredibly well. You obviously you want to, you want to go to the guy who does a lot of them, right? You don't want to, you don't want to be in the, uh, the, the onesie twosie hospital, uh, you know, at a higher incremental cost, both in the, in the, in the actual case volume, but also higher cost uh, on the downstream side. But yeah, I, I think hospitals, I think inpatient bed capacity is definitely going to shrink. It's been shrinking for a long time. If you go back to the eighties and the, when they changed how, you know, when cataract surgery used to be done inpatient, um, you know, that's, you know, a lot of the technological advances will push cases out into lower acuity settings closer to the home. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's, it's interesting to think about hospitals being, there being few, fewer inpatient beds, I think definitely in, in the future. All right. Well, so Tom, I, I think the answer to this whole thing collectively is I hope you're right, because you just outlined a very optimistic vision for where healthcare can go, both in terms of people living healthier lives and having a lot more access to care and bringing down costs. So uh, if you're right, I, th I think everyone will be ecstatic. And if you're wrong, we're no worse off than we are today, I guess. So, um, so good job. <laughs> well, I mean, it's not that it's not it's not that hard to imagine at this point. And, uh, you know, again, I've, I've been a huge skeptic. I'm a trained skeptic because I've seen a lot of just the darker side of how this whole thing works. And I, and I think the future it does indeed look really bright. If, again, if we can break this inflationary hold, um, you know, and if we and if the consumer can really lead the way, I, I think we're going to we're going to get a, we're going to get a long way to that goal. Yeah, uh, better, faster, cheaper. All right, let's hope we can do it. Tom Tobin, thanks for joining us.